Because the mind of the reader wishes to unburthen itself of a thought, however flippant, however silly, however trivial, still a thought indeed, not merely a thing that might have been thought in time and under more favorable circumstances. In the marginalia, too, we talk only to ourselves. We therefore talk freshly, boldly, with abandonment, without conceit. Edgar Allan Poe on marginalia. Speak. The charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy podcast featuring Reverend Eric. Join me on an exploration of the practice, philosophy, and history of the occult, esotericism, and the paranormal. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. James Russell. Dr. Russell is a book historian in Phoenix, Arizona. He completed his doctorate at the Institute of Medieval and Early Modern Studies at Durham University in the United Kingdom. James is interested in how material texts shape spiritual experiences. Focusing on early modern esoteric and contemplative literature, he studies the traces readers have left behind in books and manuscripts in order to reconstruct the reading experiences of the past. Dr. Russell, thank you for joining us. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, I'm really excited. I guess I probably should have also led with this is the third in my series of podcasts about the Hypnorodomachia polyphili, which we will probably only refer to as HP throughout the rest of the episode. Because yeah, HP is my favorite abbreviation. Yeah, it's it's, it. it's uh, also, people also say the polyphilo. I sometimes say the hypnorodomachia because yeah. isn't polyphily a um, a genitive? Yeah, so you know it's the hypnorodomachia. But anyhow, regardless, every Plus you can also argue that Polya is really the main character of uh, <laughs> and the protagonist of the story, not polyphilo. Well, except that for the first like two thirds of the story. Um, uh, Polia is uh, a dream character, like an imaginary dream character, and you don't even get to see her side of stuff until, you know, pretty deep in. But in yeah. any case, um, we are here because you have, your your uh, your doctoral dissertation was about the HP, and in particular about sort of uh, analyzing the influence of the HP through looking at uh, marginalia, or things that the owners of the book had written in the book as they were reading it, right? Y- yes. Um, there's this image that the HP is a professor called an unicum, this unique marvel that simply stands as an individual bizarre object. And I wanted to try to see how it was actually used. Um, was this a text that people act- that people read, that people applied? Uh, that fit into some kind of human into humanistic uh, networks, and so uh, got the idea for to work with marginalia from a book called "The Book Nobody Read" by Owen Gingrich, right? Where uh, author Kostler uh, f- said that Copernicus's De Revolutionibus is the the book nobody read, the book that uh, kind of like Das Kapital changed the world without pe- most people actually wading their way through it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, and that book, uh, like the influence of, uh, <laughs> that's another book with a hell of a title, De Revolutionobis. Uh, so, so that book in particular, the, the fascinating thing about that is, um, 
Copernicus was encouraged to write it, or he had some encouragement from sort of like the papacy. And in fact, he was a, um, a doctor of canon law and like in charge of a whole church or a cathedral or something. And he was encouraged to write it and nobody really reacted negatively to it for like a hundred years at least. Right. So, so it felt like nobody had read it. And there was this impression that when people did read it, they would be reading it for the heliocentric hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Um, And what uh, Owen, an uh, astronomer named Owen Gingrich decided to do a world census of all the annotated copies of De Revolutionibus and found that they were prolifically annotated throughout the entire text, including in the most extremely technical sections. Um, I think he said something to the effect that he expected that readers would write, um, this crazy book says that the The solar system is heliocentric. Mm -hmm. But in fact, they folk continued assiduously to read throughout the entire book. So from there, I got the idea to see, well, if the HP is a book that, quote, you know, nobody read, that is simply a visual marvel that's a a masterpiece of typography let's see if people did read it and leave traces of their writing and found that quite a few did yeah you know even in um the introduction to uh jocelyn godwin's translation he talks about the difficulty of reading the hp and kind of gives the impression that it was impossible for any but like the most astute scholars to even approach it because you needed to have familiarity with like three or four languages to to get through the the weird made-up language that it uses um but it seems this, like maybe that wasn't the case it doesn't seem to be um i serve i tried to do a census of all the copies listed in the uh incunable short title catalog there's a, a world catalog of all books printed before 1501 um they're known to be extant and i sent surveys to librarians uh or reached out and looked at catalogs for 260 copies. Uh, And of those, 33% have some degree of annotation. And 4% were heavily annotated. That's a pretty good number. Yeah. Um, And were you able to track down um, all of the annotators of the 4%? In in some cases they're known, in some cases they're anonymous. Um, uh-huh. Where, the for example, the copy at Como, we for some the provenance is listed. For others, um, I simply had to number the hand, hands uh, A, B, and C. Uh, and particularly for the two, what's tantalizing is for the two alchemical hands. Uh, we don't that I've came across. We don't yet know who they were. There are some possible candidates. Um, one of them, I floated that it could be Sir Ken Elm Digby, but I don't have enough evidence to back that up. Wow. And uh, we don't have enough of his handwriting to compare it, or is it just not distinctive enough, or handwriting analysis is just difficult? <laughs> handwriting analysis is yet to be done. That would be a great project for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the most... Uh, so among the annotators that you were able to identify, did any like really surprise you? The one that caught me most by surprise was Pope Alexander the seventh yeah. um, his copy in the Vatican library so uh, and one of, and one of the interesting um, uh, connections that you drew to him was he was the one who commissioned Bernini to create that uh, elephant and an obel- elephant and obelisk statue right 
Yeah, the Pulcino della Minerva. So do you think that's uh, that's kind of a definitive proof that uh, Bernini's statue came from the Hypnorotomachia, the HP? It's hard to jump and say it's definitive proof because I was surprised by the lack of marginalia on that very page. There was only one marginal note on the page with the elephant and obelisk, which uh, offered a cross-reference to another obelisk, uh, the Trinitarian obelisk, uh, on page 66. Huh. And of course, um, Pope Alexander VII put up obelisks all over Rome. But at first, I have to admit I was a little disappointed because I had, was so excited to see that these marginalia are going to show uh, Bernini and Fabio Chigi Alexander VII that worked together, and they didn't. Mm. But what they did show, um, which was a an example of how marginalia is is about following a will of the wisp. It's about taking it, taking the following the notes where they lead you, usually outside of of your own background entirely. Mm-hmm. And one of the places that it took me was that Alexander the Seventh looked at the text as a rhetorical treatise. Oh, interesting. And he, what the text illuminated about the elephant and the obelisk is not necessarily that he directly derived it from it, but that his own argument behind the elephant and the obelisk was informed by rhetorical structures he found within the HP. So what does that necessarily mean? Like he... Um, I, can you can you elucidate that a little bit? Like, explain what you mean by a rhetorical structure in the HP. I, I guess I'm confused by that concept. Okay, so the the elephant and the obelisk is an impresa, which okay. is like an emblem, which is like an emblem. Mm-hmm. It's a rhetorical argument made in visual form, and. The elephant traditionally symbolizes the resurrection of the flesh. Really? And the, the elephant and obelisk was made in 1667, which was the year Kiji died. So it was a meditation on his own mortality. And if you look at the image of the elephant of the obelisk, there are stairs descending downward. And the woman and man you see on the next page uh, of the HP are actually within the diegetic space of the HP are inside the elephant. So Polyphilo goes into the elephant like Jonah into the whale and becomes resurrected. So you see an interesting parallel with what Kiji might have been reflecting on in the year of his death. Um, so that's kind of extra fascinating. I honestly, I had forgotten about that in the, in the HP. It hadn't really struck me very much, but that really does sort of seem to be Alexander the Seventh reflecting on his own death and somehow having Bernini put that into a sculpture, like sort of wow, huh? Yeah. And part of the way we see this is that Kiji's notes are very um, Alexander the Seventh, Fabio right. Kiji. His notes are very spare. Uh, he goes to and usually makes one or two word marks writing descrizione or dichiarazione. A uh, descrizione sh- says that this is where a uh, impresa is beginning. Uh, this is the, the the commencement of an ekphrasis or a, a descriptive argument. And then dichiarazione is where the idea is being expanded. So we see that concept of we 
we'll speak later of inventio, the coming up with ideas, and ingenio, the ingenious combination of ideas, uh, coming, being applied to the HP because Kiji is looking specifically for places where there is a particularly ingenious combination of elements and then seeks to make a dichiarazione and unpacking of those elements. So that kind of indicates like a really close reading of the HP. Like that's especially with the Pope inserting himself into the narrative because uh -huh. he keeps using the, the, the phrase segue. Um, and he writes segue whenever there's what we would say in modern terms, the camera angle changes. Oh, fascinating. You know, I guess uh, when I read the HP for the first time, to me, it seemed like um, almost like a guided visionary journey, right? Like the the exactitude of all the measurements and um, uh, Polyphilo's, uh, just sort of the way he describes his whole journey and the detail and everything. And like everything he looks at gets so much added to it uh, that to me, it sort of seemed almost... You know, I, I was sort of really inspired to kind of look at it almost as a uh, as a memory structure or as an imaginal yes. structure that is sort of like built for the reader. The reader sort of goes through it and experiences it almost like a movie in the mind. And in doing that, they you're testing and refining and exercising the muscles of your faculties. You're cultivating your own ingenio. Mm -hmm. um, for example, there are these long descriptions of buildings unaccompanied by an illustration. Mm -hmm. And the act of maintaining that visual image in your head is hard enough. I mean, you know, on psychological tests, people are asked to rotate a shape visually, and it's hard to do. It is. So yeah. imagine pick, picking, you know, trying to envision without an illustration an elaborate Vitruvian structure with all the zophors and epistyles and all these other features. It's a feat of the mind to do. And so you see the HP providing games for its readers, um, activity book type exercises with which they can cultivate their faculties, such as trying to envision a building. And one thing we see in the copy um, in the Biblioteca degli Intonati di Siena is a is readers actually rendering those structures in the margins, following the instructions the HP gives gives them, and when it's when it literally says draw this shape. And they draw. They follow the instructions to the letter. Uh, you see the the faculty of the mind's eye being refined. So then you kind of get the impression that um, previous. So a lot of these annotators, a lot of these marginalia authors, were uh, interacting with the HP in that way. They were using it as a uh, as a instruction book of some sort and practicing their own imaginal faculties and strengthening their own ability to visualize these structures and interpret the text and stuff? Yes, and in and what interested me most is that they were doing it through pen and pencil exercises. Um, in some cases, there'd be a, a, a word written in the, the Latinate, Italian, polyphilesque language, and someone would write liket, which means this means reads and write their translation. That's an intellectual exercise. Rendering a description that's not accompanied by an, an ekphrastic description that's not accompanied by an illustration is also an ex exercise, which is where I came around to the idea of this is an activity book. 
Oh, that is such um, a strange idea. I mean, it's it's a really good idea, um, and it makes me wonder. So, so uh, Francesco Colonna, who is sort of theoretically the author of uh, of the HP, um, he was a monk, correct? Yes. Was he a Was he a Dominican? He was a Dominican, and and so we. Know I would suggest. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but we know that the Dominicans had a really strong history of um practicing stuff like the art of memory so they did and in particularly their the dominican preaching tradition comes out in the hp as well um i mean one thing dominicans would use uh when when speaking would be exempla uh exaggerated comic or strange examples which would be used to jolt the audience's attention back when it was wandering and that's an also that's also a mnemotechnic device because whatever is surrounding something strange or unexpected is going to be more likely to be retained. And so I think that's one of the stronger arguments for the Venetian Colonna being the author is that there's D- Dominican ideology throughout. Um, means even Saint Fran- the Nine Ways of Prayer of Saint Francis where there are different gestures given mm-hmm. to you to hold in prayer. We see in the woodcuts people holding those gestures. Oh, interesting. I'm, I just keep thinking about that idea of the uh, the exempla. I'm I'm having a Giordano Bruno distraction moment, I guess, in my head. But you know, uh, Bruno the best has, kind. <laughs> it is really. But um, you know, Bruno has his whole thing um, of using images to influence crowds and stuff, which just seems like it plays straight into that is kind of excellent um okay so let's i, I want to go back to um some terms that you've brought up a couple of times uh, uh inventio and uh ingenium can you talk about those a little bit like are those did, where where do those come from so in the renaissance and early modern period there was this cult of wit and there was this idea of of wit or ingenuity um coalescing in this idea of ingenium in Italian uh, ingenio which doesn't quite map onto our which overlaps in a semantic field with our ideas of creativity wit uh, spontaneity but encompasses all of them and it, it can be summarized as your ability to unite disparate to find useful disparate elements and unite them in clever ways which the reader is likely to retain so in the the terms comes from quintilian and cicero um quintilian's institutio oratoria and cicero's topica and in the institutio oratoria inventio is the first stage of rhetoric it's where you come up with your idea Hmm. and a person possessed of ingenio is somebody who can find commonplaces, classical elements, citations, and unite them in memorable ways. And an especially memorable unification of disparate elements would be called an acutezza. Um, huh. And as, in it, as in if I said, love is like a red rose, you're unlikely to remember that. If I said love is like a dump truck, you will. <laughs> <laughs> because if I've I've united two more widely disparate elements that your your brain has had to cohere. Uh-huh. So that's an acutezza. Okay. okay. And an acu- 
And so how do you think that that sort of thing ends up um, uh, playing out in the Hypnorotomachia, in the HP? Well, the HP takes advantage of the fact that it's a dream space. Mm -hmm. Um, And Freud said the dream is the place where no does not apply. And in a dream, Freud noted that the most insignificant pieces of sensory input throughout your day could become major elements in your dream, the sign you see out of the corner of your eye. And so what the HP is, is essentially a huge array of citations woven together with this framing device of a love story. Mm. So it's, it in itself represents inventio. It represents gathering all the elements of a human, of a humanist's life that a humanist would need to call on uh, what Ted Hand called service professionals, which they were. They were the the intellectual mediators at court and for the, the aristocracy. So they would need to refine these faculties for their for professional reasons. Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. So, I mean, it just it just brings um, it adds so much depth to the just the artistry and the composition of the of the HP to think of it as being like an expression of that or even the fact that it could have been written purposely to uh, uh, facilitate other people in practicing and um, engaging in those in those sorts of exercises like yeah do you think it was purposeful part a lot I hesitate before saying that because a lot of my thesis was about moving away from the idea of authorial intent and looking at reader reception. But right. if I'm going to venture back into the world of authorial intent, um, I would say that if it is if it is the Venetian Colonna, yes. I mean, he was the preacher at St. Mark's mm-hmm. in Venice. Um, he was a, a, a public intellectual and he would have needed these capacities and it would have been of his interest to help his colleagues develop them as well because you have these humanistic um, networks, almost these sort of confraternities or, or clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if the Venetian Colonna belonged to one per se, but particularly w- at least within his Dominican networks and within the wider community of humanists, there would have been a recognized need for it. And that makes me think of um, Leon Lefebvre's book uh, on Leon Battista Alberti's Hypnotomachia Polyphily, because uh, her book has largely been dismissed because Alberti is less likely to be the author. Mm-hmm. But her argument that the HP is a place, is a dream space where you have recombinant logic, where. Like Lillian style, or, or maybe not? I don't know enough about Raymond Lull to say. Tell, tell, tell me more. Well, Lull had so Lull was um, he had this sort of uh, logic system that involved uh, a lot of imaginal sort of like wheels of ideas that would sort of turn and interlock and interplay in various ways. Um, but I it it's it was complicated stuff that very few people apparently were able to master or use well. But I do believe that the Dominicans taught it. That is fascinating, and I would love to see those citations. Uh, I don't know that I have any for you. I might just be making stuff up, but uh, uh, Lull is is a pretty 
strange character and would be worth uh, you, you might find some interesting stuff with him I'm sure um so so uh okay so the this particular author was arguing that uh who who did who's who were they arguing that the author of the HP was Leon Lefebvre was arguing that um Leon Battista Leon Battista Alberti uh-huh was the author of the HP and since the main argument against him being the author is that he died in 1472 and the typography and layout of the HP is so fine that it's very likely that the author was present to see it through the press. Yeah, I would guess that that's probably true. Although at the same time, um, you know, Minutius and his, uh, his uh, typesetter buddy, his uh, letter cutter or whatever, they seem to have a pretty good, yeah, yeah. Griffo, they seem to have a pretty good handle on making books pretty. Yes, they did. Um, (laughs) Which is, I, I guess, another thing that the HP is pretty fast. It's fascinating that they managed at such an early era of uh, book printing to make something that is so attractive to look at. Because a lot of early books are kind of, you know, they aren't as nice. <laughs> and it, in some ways, the annotators revere the attractiveness of the book itself. I mean, there's kind of like the ethic that graffiti artists don't spray paint over murals. Mm-hmm you get the annotators making these, in some cases, very beautiful, crisp, and careful annotations that end up complementing the beauty of the page, especially in the Sienna copy. I mean, in the show notes, I'd love if there's some way to post um, images of the Sienna copy because the marginalia ends up flattering the book it's on oh i would love to post uh, an image of that can you if, if you can send me one I'll, I'll stick it in the show notes uh, the other image i would love to include is the image um in your dissertation of uh of the um the woodblock where there's a, a page that's just a woodblock and it's covered in handwriting like i thought that was yeah. just sort of like wow whoever read this book whoever read this copy was really into this <laughs> yeah that was the copy of the vitruvian pyramid and yeah. What fascinating, that's in the copy that is in the Buffalo and Erie County Public Library of all places. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. How do you, the East Coast, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm out here in Phoenix, unfortunately. Um, Yeah. But I mean, Phoenix would be great. It's a great uh, climate for preserving books. (laughs) I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it that. But what's neat about the Vitruvian Pyramid is that it's covered in cross-references that are written onto the panel so that there'll be a Vitruvian feature and there'll be a a reference linking that later on in the book to where else that feature occurs. So I almost compared it to a DVD menu where you can click on various pieces of an image that will take you to certain scenes. Mm -hmm. And thinking about, especially mnemotechnae and the way information is arranged, it was cool to see a woodcut turned into a set of hyperlinks. Yeah, that is a, that is fascinating. Um, yeah, it was. A, I I tell, I would love to take a closer look at that. Uh, I have a little bit of an aside question here. Go for uh, it. This is something that gets brought up um, a lot of times when people are writing about the HP. The first edition was folio sized. Yes. Like enormous. It's big. Wow, and how many of them did you get to see? I saw, of the prolifically annotated copies, I've looked. I looked at thirteen. 
um, about half of those in facsimile and half of those in person. And what is it like to be around the first edition of such a influential and important book? Like, how does that feel? It's it's awe-inspiring, and that's one of the things that keeps me coming back to the HP. I mean, as I spent six years of my life working on this book, and you don't even begin to exhaust the meanings that are found within it. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's just such a, a rich f- fountain, and I'm going to find myself coming back to it. And the, the places it's taken me, I mean, I've, I've had the... The, the bounty of being able to to visit you know the Vatican Library like because of the HP wow. and it Polyphilo's journey has has personally shaped the journey of my own life in so many so many fascinating ways that there's research and me search <laughs> end up end up interpen- you know inter- interconnecting I have to say you know there are many books in my life that I love but uh I have never encountered a book um, like the HP that has inspired and like touched the people who like, like people fall in love with this book. Yeah. I mean, I'm in love with this book. I love sitting with this book and reading it and just looking at the woodcuts and just, I mean, in fact, a lot of times I do treat it as a picture book frequently. (laughs) I mean, you could... Poly, you know, Frater Francisco's Columna Polian Paramawit, you know, greatly mm-hmm. loved Polia. And if Polia means antiquity or if Polia means the book itself, we are all in this process falling in love with Polia. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, okay, so we've talked a little bit about um, the Inwentio and Ingenium or However, we're going to pronounce those words. <laughs> yeah, actually, one woodcut before you go on that I wanted to highlight with Inwentio and Ingenio is the, uh, a woodcut you highlighted with Venus and the Satyr. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where there's this aroused Satyr coming upon a naked Venus with two puti mm-hmm. standing beside them. And that's labeled Pantantokadi, uh, the mother of all things. And in mid-16th century rhetoric, Inwentio is known as the mother of all things because it's the beginning of the generative process. Oh, so it's just in there explicitly. Yep. Wow. And then what what's even more remarkable is that at least in the Buffalo copy, the no, sorry, the, the, the British Library copy, the annotator wrote the symbols for mercury and then cinnabar, mercury sulfide, above the two, two vessels huh. that are being held above ready to be mixed into this um this conjunctio right here this this connection mm-hmm. so you see the alchemical process and inwentio unified in one creative act in that particular woodcut i totally i want to talk a little bit more about the alchemical stuff but i want to make the listeners wait a little bit because there's something um, in your thesis that you discuss that is really fascinating to me, which is the uh, the botanical exploration. Like one of the, you know, I think a lot of people um, who read the Hypnorotomachia uh, or just look at the pictures like like I do, <laughs> um, get really fascinated by both the uh, the architectural depictions and then like the, uh, the pagan uh, triumphs. Um, yeah. But uh, but there's also this rich... Uh, textual description of plant life and yeah. um, 
and it goes on for pages and it sort of crops up in a few different places. Like every time, you know, Polyphilo like falls down and, you know, scrapes his knee or whatever, he's like, oh, and while I was down there, I saw this plant and I saw this plant and I saw this plant. And um, one of the things that you draw attention to is one of the one of the marginalia writers uh, was apparently fascinated by comparing these um, plant descriptions to uh, Pliny the Elder's uh, writings. Yep. So you could come at the HP's content, whether it's architectural, botanical, um, even wildlife, as like a choose-your-own-adventure book, where you can choose to continue in a linear path through all of the content or skip over certain content. Um, for example, if you're not only interested in botany, then you would skip over the architecture to the next bot botanical passage. And the uh, Benedetto Giovio, who is a humanist who lived at Como in Italy, where Pliny the Elder was born and lived, uh, was very proud of his city's, uh, Pliny's origins and applied a Plinian reading to the HP. And the HP itself derives from Pliny. So you have, it cites Pliny. So you have this feedback loop going on. But what's particularly caught my interest is that Benedetto Giovio realized how that the how the passages with botanical content were bookended, hmm. uh, and he re he read the HP in the same way that Pliny advises Emperor Vespasian to read the Naturalis Historia. Oh, interesting. Which is um, in the in the proemium to the Naturalis Historia, Pliny um, essentially tells Vespasian, "I've written this to spare you." A, a massive reading. I've digested many, many books together into this newly huge volume of <laughs> um, of factoids. But the but um, a scholar named um, Odd Duty noticed that Pliny uses something like an exemplar, where he'll have long structure, long sequences of everyday, normal scientific fact, and then he'll have a mirabilium. You'll have something strange or bizarre. And that mirabilium will mark the end of a section, the beginning of a new one. And Colonna seems to have composed the HP that way, and Benedetto Jovio recognized that. So mm. he reads through the botanical passages until he gets to the mirabilium, stops, and then resumes at the next botanical passage. And that really showed how readers would approach the HP with a purpose in mind, extractively, because uh, Benedetto Giovio wrote a translation, an Italian translation of Vitruvius. So I would have thought he would have gone right to all the architecture, but he skips right over it. And he just wants the botanical parts of it. Just, just, what, just the Pliny and botany. You know, that's that's interesting, um, especially since like some of the HP's uh, architecture uh, even the stuff that is depicted um, in woodcuts is it turns out that some of it is kind of impossible if you're just yes. looking at the measurements um, and who knows if that's intentional or accidental or a typo that came through the you know the typesetting process but that's sort of a, a really fascinating thing um, but this also points out something that uh, is really different between the readers of the HP and the readers of Copernicus, right? Because uh, all of the uh, Copernican annotators and the Copernican marginalia writers, they were all uh, 
scientists. They were yeah. uh, natural natural philosophers of some sort. Whether they were, you know, wait, can we call scientists back then astrophysicists, proto astrophysicists? Well, whatever they were, <laughs> they were they were mathematicians who were looking at the sky. So their approach was basically trying to like break apart the writings of this uh, of this difficult genius and try to understand what Copernicus was even talking about. Whereas here you have uh, a multitude of approaches where you have, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, how do you say Alexander the Seventh's last name? Kigi? Fabio Kigi. Kigi. So you have uh, Fabio Kigi sort of approaching it as this uh, uh, contemplation of his own mortality. You have um, other people approaching it as this thing uh, having to do with uh, Inventione and Genio. And then you've got... uh, this person who just wants to explore the botany and the reflections on, you know, a writer from 1500 years earlier, like that sort of, uh, that sort of disparate readership, um, and disparate, uh, highly engaged readership is fascinating. And I don't know what other books really, um, invite that. Have you come across any other books that have had that kind of, uh, you know, broad appeal? I have not. And that's one of the things that intrigues me is about what is it distinctive about the HP that creates this particularly welcoming space for this kind of play. But one thing I would love to hear from listeners is their ideas for comparable texts. Me too. Because I spent so much long zeroing in on HP that I've probably overlooked analogous. analogous. There There are other texts that are in the same genre of the dream as spiritual ascent, like there's the uh, Somnium Scipionis, there's Boccaccio's Amorosa Visione, but I don't know, and I'd be, I'd be very interested to find out if readers annotated those using similar methods. Uh, because what the only thing that seems to unite the annotators is their use of the text for Inventio. Other than that, they're a very disparate group. And that's one of the things that made this project so hard is that I kept being led into topics that I had no background on. I mean, I had to give myself a crash course in Renaissance botany <laughs> four years into my PhD. That's fun. <laughs> to be able to contextualize this, which which was fun. It was just, it's a matter of, I was continually going into areas where I was probably making pretty naive conclusions. And that, I'd, I'd say that particularly about alchemy is that I'd really welcome feedback um, from specialists in the field of alchemy because when I came across the alchemical annotators by surprise, I mean, I there, there have been proposed alchemical readings, but the, the, annot- the fact that people actually annotate alchemically grounded Freud, Jung, and Fears David's readings in, reali- in reality, but I suddenly had to brief myself on alchemy Enough I don't to know get if by. Brief yeah. has ever been used. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can't. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the the alchemists. Then, how many how many alchemical annotators did you come across? I came across two, um, in the copy at Buffalo, and in the second hand in the copy in the British Library that was owned by Ben Johnson. Uh, well, now Ben Johnson. Um, I ho- hopefully the readers know who Ben Johnson was. He was he was pretty important. He was a uh, playwright and um, poet and stuff around the time of Shakespeare. 
Uh, yep, and he wrote a play called The Alchemist. That's, where that's he true. So he ske- skewers alchemists as charlatans while showing that he has a vast knowledge of alchemy right. himself with which to skewer them. So do you think that those alchemical notations in his uh, copy of the HP were from him? They weren't. Um, and that's oh. one of the things that's puzzling is that Ben Johnson instead looked at what seemed to be sources for stagecraft. Um, he read the HP and wrote a summary where he only wrote down those features of the HP that could be visually represented. So he, he writes down that he notices towers, ships, processions, and so on, but he doesn't write anything about Polyphilo and Polia's romance. He doesn't write anything about the botany, and it seemed like Ben Johnson, the playwright, was mining the HP um, for inspiration for stagecraft. Uh, and the second hand in the H, the second hand in the HP is actually quite late. It has to post date 1641 because it overwrites an ownership inscription from a later owner dated 1641. So that's actually pretty. That's like, moving later for an alchemical hand. Oh yeah, it was probably Isaac Newton. <laughs> I would, I would be so tempted to. That would be wonderful to say. And the the alchemical, the set of alchemical. Um, symbols or ideograms that they used to abbreviate the names of the elements map largely onto Newton's in the um, in the Milton Keynes Newton manuscripts. Well, I mean, we have a lot of Newton's handwriting to compare to. And it's not. I would love yeah. to say it was, but I, what I could say is it's the, the similarity of uh, alchemical abbreviations is such that it may derive from the same Cambridge circle. I mean... The, what, what do they call them? So the Invisible College with Elias Ashmole and his whole group of friends. I mean, that's it's like the right time period for so many weird, fascinating English alchemists and scientists and stuff. It'd be great to find out exactly who it was. Yeah, uh, that's why I proposed Ken L. Digby because he was a friend of Ben John. He was a friend of Ben Johnson, and he actually retreated to Gresham College and dedicated himself to the study of alchemy around that period. Wow. So if it was somebody else from Johnson's circle, that's one possible candidate, but I'd have to see many more samples of handwriting to say anything more. Well, you can still get a second PhD, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it, there's <laughs> there's there's days when I want to. <laughs> oh, that sounds like a really fascinating area to study. Okay, so that was Ben Johnson's copy, and that one is in the British Library, British Museum? It's in the British Library, and there's a sec- the second hand there, um, makes over 300 pages of alchemical notes it's vast um and we i know it's an english annotator because he writes in latin but occasionally breaks into english um and like he describes one one structure as frog green uh, and then then goes back into latin Uh um and is there a term for those alchemical ideograms like the the mirror of venus uh, you know, there probably is. Uh, I myself am only marginally familiar with alchemy. It's such a, it's a, it's, it's really its own school of thing. Um, especially among practitioners, like practitioners of alchemy, uh, the ones who haven't exploded yet, uh, they have their own way of talking and their own way of dealing with stuff and their own yeah. allegorical language that I, I only understand a little bit of, um, 
but I think a lot of times they are referred to as emblems. Yeah. Um, because what's neat is you see the emblem inserted in the sentence with proper Latin grammar. So, for example, if they want to say aurum, they'll put the symbol for gold and then um after it to make sure it fits into the sentence grammatically. Oh, so you're the talking picture, about that kind of like uh, the the sort of uh, symbolic shorthand where they use. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, you you will find that also in astrological texts. So that's, that's neat. Yeah, it is pretty neat. Um, I'm not sure what the term for that is, uh, but it, it isn't entirely unique to um, alchemists. Yeah, my source for, for that, for those ones was J.T. Dobbs' um, Hunting of the Green Lion, The Foundations of Newton's Alchemy. Oh, nice. Nice. Which is a great book. Yeah, I have not read it. Um, have you read uh, or had a chance to peruse Elias Ashmole's, uh, what is it, Theatrum Chemicum um, Britannicum? Only briefly. That's a fun one. That's yeah. pretty good. Uh, okay, so that was um, that was the first alchemist, and the second alchemist. You said their their copy is in the Buffalo Library. Yes, and what differentiates the alchemists is the general theoretical schema that they have. Um, argue that the annotator in the BL is drawing upon um, an alchemist named Jean, Jean Despagnier. Uh, who is writing in the early 17th century. And what makes that stand out is the role of mercury that uh, Despagnier really foregrounds. Um, and of course, everyone foregrounds mercury as an element. But what's neat about him is that he sees mercury as this subtle substance which emanates from the sun. And that oh. material things possess a magnetic property which attracts the emanating mercury to them. Uh, so, and he, he describes it sort of like the water cycle where you have rain and then condensation, but with mercury as the life force. And what's neat about that is that in his book, the uh, Enchiridion Physicae Restitutae, he lays out this schema, and then the annotator of this foregrounds mercury primarily out of all the elements. Um, in fact, in one point, he writes, uh, Translated from Latin, the true sense of the intention of this book is threefold, the full and elegant description of the energy and spirit of the whole nature and of the operations of Master Mercury. So the idea of Mercury as this sort of spiritus mundi uh, might come from Despagnier, and this is the one where you get the two puti holding the vessels of Mercury and Cinnabar. Mm -hmm. And instead of the reclining Venus approached by the satyr um, being Pantandokadi, the mother of all things, it's rerum omnium was, uh, the vessel of all things. And then the annotator of the copy in Buffalo seems to be drawing on pseudo-Jeber mm -hmm. uh, for their alchemical scheme. Um, Jaber ibn Hayyan uh, was a, a Muslim uh, alchemist, but who in a pseudo-tradition in a book called the Summa Perfectionis was quite influential in the Middle Ages. And what makes Jeber's scheme stand out is that he sees silver and gold as the same element um, attenuated into their inverses. So there is that substance which is gold at its height and silver at its depth. Okay. So and so, yeah you were able to trace those sorts of influences by looking uh, now, were you able to trace those influences by, through direct reference or was it more along the lines of um, parts of the HP that they 
that they uh, singled out or or particular allegories that they were interested in? Yeah, yes, Jebber is cited specifically in the Buffalo copy, but Despagnier, as far as I found, is not cited in the British Library copy. Um, that was an in, that's an inference, but Jebber does specifically have his name mentioned next to the a woodcut that reads Gonos Kayuthuya, mm. which is labor and industry. And underneath that, he praises, the annotator praises Jebber's quote, ingenium subtile. Um, but what makes it most stand out as something being pseudo Jebber is the human chess match. Oh, okay. Because in the, the, the human chess match episode, there are 32 maidens uh, dressed in silver, 32 dressed in gold, and they have a chess. They have three rounds of chess. Silver wins two times, and gold wins the final round. That sounds and, like something that Jaber would have uh, enjoyed reading. <laughs> and that this this Jaberian annotator noted because he pays quite quite a lot of attention to the human chess match. He writes, you know, Rex ex argento factus, the the king made out of silver is made you know, made Victor. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, uh, this is, the, this annotator uh, highlights another woodcut where it's, there's the statue of the horse and it says to the ambiguous gods. Uh -huh. And this annotator proposes that the ambiguous gods refers to the alchemical hermaphrodite. So, so they really brought their own lens to their interpretation of, uh, of the HP that's yeah. uh i mean that's just fascinating too so after having come across the alchemical annotations and uh and tracked down where those influences might have come from does that change your own interpretation of the hp do you think that there is an alchemical allegory um purposely embedded in the hp i still have to say i don't know yeah I, I a would lot have to of say what that too. I know a lot of what I was trying to do was move away from the whole guess of what did the author mean, what did the author mean, and then thinking, well, how did readers use it? Mm -hmm. And but what we do know is that by 1600, whether or not it was Colonna's intent, the HP had already had become well established as an alchemical text because there was an explicitly alchemical edition uh, that came out in 1600 by, um, pardon my pronunciation. French pronunciation, uh, Berroil de Verville, uh, which was uh, the Le Tableau des Riches Inventions, the, uh, with, and which contained the Tableau Stegranographique, uh, showing specifically how the alchemical imagery was encoded. And that was the edition that Jung was citing in Psychology and Alchemy when he talked about polyphilo and polia as representing animus and anima. Was that a particular edition a translation into French? Yes. Oh, that was a partial translation, wasn't it? Like, it wasn't complete? I'd have to go back and check. I'm trying to remember from my own notes, but I know that uh, not a lot of people succeeded in finishing a translation. Like, there was an Italian yeah. one, I think, in the 1500s, and then... Uh, yeah, Robert Dollington gave up on the English one. Yeah, oh, maybe that's what it was. There was half an English translation... Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess I, I'm I'm 
it's it's hard to you know listening to all of these cool things you're discovering it's really hard to hold on to this idea where you don't want to try to go back and guess what the author of the hp actually intended right like i yeah. i keep slipping into that trap i'm like oh my god i have to continually to hold myself back from doing it yeah that's so fascinating i guess it just makes me think you know um uh you know one of godwin's uh, theses in one of his other books is that uh the HP was a basic, basically like a direct influence on the uh, Rosicrucian tradition. That um, yeah. uh, Andrea, when he wrote the uh, the the Chemische Hochzeit, literally just was like, "I'm going to rewrite the HP," and 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 just ripped off the whole allegory. Um, yeah. In which case, you know, that means that Andrea saw it as this sort of uh, weird. I mean, I, I I don't even want to think about that. That's a difficult question right now. <laughs> but it's 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 fascinating to see that, like, because we don't have a copy of Andrea um, Andrea's HP if he ever had one. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So the only author I can say who, who we know we have his we have had his his HP was uh, Ben Johnson, and he does. In a, one of his masks called The Case is Altered, he does have a character named Francesco Colonia. Really? So do yes. you think he saw the acrostic? Did he figure out the acrostic uh, back then? He must have. The uh, acrostic was known, at least in Italy, by fixed 1516 because Sixtus Medicis uh, wrote a marginal note uh describing the the acrostic and what to look for oh, i love that that that's so cool um so do we have uh do you have uh have you come across instances where you think that there are direct influences from the imagery of the hp in any of ben johnson's plays like do we have descriptions of some of his set pieces or or anything like that that shows that he ended up using any of those notes to create some of his sets that's a research direction i'd like to go in um, I haven't done an ex done an extensive comparison between it and it and his masks, and I'd also have to compare it to the work of Inigo Jones, who was uh, Ben Johnson's set designer. But that would definitely be a productive avenue for research. Oh, that would be so much fun. Well, I hope that you write a book about that because I want to read that book. <laughs> um, yeah, I appreciate the encouragement. Yeah, I'm I'm totally there. I I I love hearing about all of these weird things that are coming that that came out of the HP. Um, and I feel like we, we uh, one of the phrases that you use in your thesis that I really want to make sure that people take away from this is the humanist activity book thing. I don't know that we've touched on it enough as as much as we've been talking about all these people doing things, but like you sort of propose the HP as like a pre precursor to activity books. Like it's yeah. it's meant as a. I guess we did talk a little bit about it being sort of an imaginal exploration of things and, and stuff like that. And I just, I love that concept so much. It makes me like, I don't know how many people I have, have inspired to go get a copy and read the HP, but it is just a delight to read. Uh, uh, Jocelyn Godwin's uh, translation is extremely accessible and yeah. you can really just like, it's, it's great bedtime reading, you know, pick it up, read a little bit, You'll have super weird dreams, probably. And especially thinking about the HP as an oral perform text, because um, there's one uh, there's one quotation where someone says, "When I 
or darn, who said it? Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Uh, and when immediately when I hear um, Egocom audio polyphily historiam statim dormio, whenever I hear Polyphilo's story, I, immediate, I immediately sleep. <laughs> but what that suggests is that this was an orally performed text. And I can almost imagine these humanist confraternities gathering together and having a laugh, reading reading it aloud to each other. Oh, my God. Uh, because Polyphilesque style became a joke. Um, I mean, Thomas Nash uh, in a book called Lenten Stuff said, you know, I'll, you know, I promise to give up meat until Christmas if this book does not match the style of the polyphilo. <laughs> so the idea of exaggerated polyphilesque language was a, a known cultural reference point. That's so fascinating. And it just sort of, it, it breaks my, uh, my feeling about the HP as being inaccessible. You know, I mean, it, um, which is fascinating to me. How could... How could that conf- how could that difficult language have been so accessible to so many people? Were were they all um, like highly educated aristocrats, or were they were all of these people just like were were all those languages just so common that folks just knew them? You see, you see readers putting in effort. I mean, Ben Johnson takes the polyphilist language and parses it. He actually breaks it down into phrases and clauses, and even syllabifies it at some points. Huh. So. There was some some element of effort going on, uh, but the readings seem very lighthearted. I mean, Kiji almost seems to go through it with like a sprezzatura, like a mm-hmm. a, a light a lightness. I'm going oh dichiarazione, descrizione. Um, so I think it's a much more accessible text than one would think. I mean, uh, I cited a, a literary theorist named Wolfgang Eiser, who talked about texts are indeterminate, that the more description there is in a text, the more gaps that creates. And it's in the gaps that the reader's there to insert themselves. So the the copia of the book, the complete over-the-top elaborateness, baroqueness of it, though it's, it's not baroque period, but that overpowering complexity creates more and more opportunities for you to insert yourself into it. Oh, that's so cool! I love I love that image. I uh, I have to say um, this has you know both both uh, this conversation and my conversation with Ted Hand about um, about uh, hypnorotomachia in the in the tradition of texts intended for play. Like they both have really helped me uh, appreciate the HP as more of a um, a book to be enjoyed than analyzed. And yeah. I really, really like that about it. I, so I, yeah. I really want to thank you for the work you've done. Thank really you. Cool. I mean, I got that idea from Oregon Trail. I've heard people like my age being described as the Oregon Trail generation, like people who aren't quite millennials and aren't quite Xers. Uh-huh. But that idea of an interactive educational modality with small completable games in which you're following a narrative through a diegetic space Mm -hmm. is the hp i mean it's a 90s educational cd-rom it really is it's uh yeah Yeah. i i love that um well we are we're at about the end of the show now and i'm wondering do you have places where people can find you online um so obviously we'll link to your dissertation so people can read that Uh, but is there anything else you want uh, people to know about where they can find your work or where they can read more of your stuff 
Sure. I'm, I'm at Prof J. Russell on Twitter. And on YouTube, I'm at Thrift Store Book History. Oh, great. That, yeah, well, tell we, us about that. <laughs> the idea is I want to take book history techniques and apply them to thrift store finds as artifacts. Um, for example, I found um, an early 20th century astrology book by Evangeline Adams. And I got it as an astrology book, but it turned out it was ghostwritten by Aleister Crowley. Oh, wow. <laughs> so to, try, to go into the thrift store, find random books, and try to tell interesting stories about them using the same techniques we use for Incunabula. Oh, that sounds fascinating. Okay, well, I guess I've got another YouTube channel to watch now. Uh, well, thank you so much for being on the show. And um, if you ever come up with more cool HP stuff to talk about, uh, let me know and I will book you immediately. <laughs> I like that. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.